We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, continuing our study. It's very boomy. Sorry, Dad, there's a lot of echo and boom there. If we could just take that a bit so we don't deafen people. Um, so if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, continuing our series in Mark's gospel. That's great. Thank you. So let's read, shall we, from verse 28 through to verse 35. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Lord, as we come to appreciate your word today, we pray that you would give us open hearts. We pray that you would open spiritual eyes this afternoon. Lord God, as we read this this book and, and these few verses here, we recognize it's not the same as simply reading any other human book. Uh, these words to us are life because your words are life. And so we pray, Lord God, supernaturally as we've gathered here today, that you would open our spiritual eyes to receive your word. And as we do, that you might work in us and that that word might be planted and watered and bear much fruit that you may be glorified. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see you today. Um, I'm really, really encouraged uh, by this study in Mark's Gospel. And I'm encouraged that so many of you have managed to make it along. I know it's summer holidays, quite a few families away. But thanks to those of you who have joined us. And also to those tuning in afterwards, we welcome you also to Hope City Church. You know, the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been getting kind of a, a consistent thread in prayer, shall we say. And whenever... You get a consistent thread. Maybe you're reading verses that all seem to tie together or people are bringing prophetic words that all seem to line up. Usually that's a nudge that God is trying to tell you something. And the things that God has been saying to me that I think might be for us as a community are these. I really sense God is saying to us, firstly, that we are to have a focus a razor-like focus, laser-like focus, okay, in the months coming ahead. I don't know what's coming in these times. I don't think anybody does. But I really sense the Lord is wanting for us as a church to have singular focus, singular focus. I think it was Sue the other week in morning prayer. She said, I see a picture of a horse and it's inside of its stall and it's bucking and it's throwing its head back and it's standing up on its rear legs. And she said, and I see a picture of blinkers being put on the horse and it immediately calms the horse down. And I sense that's what 
the Lord might be doing for us, or at least wanting for us in the coming months, is to place blinkers on. Not to blind us to what's happening, but simply to help us to focus on Christ. To focus on the glory of God. To focus upon His Word and what God is doing in the world, and not on what He's not doing in the world. So firstly, it's that. It's focus. I want for us as a church to have that singular blinkered focus, that belligerent focus that doesn't turn off to the left or to the right, and that focus to be on Christ, not on our own experience of Christ, not on what He's doing in us, but on who He is, on who the person of Jesus is, on His work and His Word. The second thing I felt that the Lord is saying to us is He wants for us to be satisfied in Christ, to be fully satisfied in Him. Now, these two things might sound very simple to you. They are not incredibly deep, per se, but I often find that it's the simple things in life that actually have the most power. And being fully satisfied in Christ, how many of you understand that Christ is God? How many of you understand that we as finite beings will never be able to plumb the depths of satisfaction in Christ. You will never reach the bottom of that particular well of satisfaction in Christ. There is an infinite amount of glory to be mined in His person. And it's our inheritance as Christians to know Him. And not just know Him, but enjoy Him. It's the first, uh, it's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, isn't it? Uh, What is the chief end of mankind? Well, it's to glorify God, yes, but what else? To enjoy Him forever. And I really sense that God is saying, church, I want you to enjoy me. I want you to enjoy Christ in the coming months. These have been some of the most difficult times that I've ever lived through, and I know that's the case for many of you. There is little to satisfy us outside of Christ. There is nothing else in this world that has an infinite supply and resource of goodness and glory for us to draw on and be satisfied in. So I think it's those two things. I want to encourage you. And as you listen to today's word, I pray these two things are kind of guide rails to you as we work through material, is is number one, I feel the Lord wants us to have that that laser-like focus on Christ. And then secondly, to enjoy Him. To really enjoy Jesus. I want to be satisfied in Him. You know, that's a prayer that I want for us to take to heart. So let's move on to the text today. These verses here from 28 to 35, they form the final layer in what we call a Markan sandwich. A Markan sandwich, okay? Have you ever heard of that before, a Markan sandwich? I know some people in the room starting to think about sandwiches. You have, have you, Arjun? You've heard of a Markan sandwich. He eats them every day. And um, a Markan sandwich is basically a literary technique. Big words for a Sunday afternoon, I know, stay with me. It's a literary technique. And what Mark does is he introduces one story, okay? And then he intercalates or interlinks another story, and then he comes back to the original story. And it can be quite confusing. He does it a number of times throughout the gospel. 
In fact, there's a very famous one you'll know where Jairus comes. Jairus comes and he tells Jesus about his daughter who is sick. And Jesus says, yes, I will come and I will heal him. And then what happens? The woman with the issue of blood comes immediately and he heals her. And then we get back to the story of Jairus' daughter. This is what's known as a Mark and Sandwich. Two stories that interlink. And we can see in the beginning of verse 13, we have our top layer of the sandwich. That's the first piece of bread. And we have Jesus calling to himself up the mountain his chosen people, his apostles. He appoints them to be his apostles. Pete covered that really well a few weeks back. The middle layer begins in verse 21. Jesus has come back home. What a word to use with Jesus. Do you ever think of that, Jesus having a a home? Now, he comes home and the crowd fills that place in Capernaum. And it's so busy, he can't even eat. He's busy with ministry. And this is where we get our second layer. We hear that his family, or in the Greek, it's actually a phrase that says those about him or those beside him, those who were close to him. They set out to go and take him because they believe he's out of his mind. And then we hear that scribes are coming and they want to debate with Jesus. They want to contend with Jesus. This is the meat of the sandwich. So we start with people who Jesus calls to himself, his people. And then we go on to people who don't understand his ministry, who want to contend with his ministry or confused about his ministry. And then this final layer, we come back again to the same subject we begin with. Those who are Jesus's people, who are his family. And that's the subject that we're going to address this afternoon. Family. That is, after all, the entire focus of this passage of Scripture. We're asking the question, who are the real Jesus people? Who are the real Jesus people? Who are his true family? And what does it mean to be part of Jesus's family. Before we jump to that discussion, I do want to just briefly turn our attention to verses 28 to 30. The reason being that these verses are a source of often much confusion and fear in the body of Christ. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? And is it something that I may have unwittingly done? Have any of you ever worried with that thought? I know that I have in my Christian life. What if I've accidentally committed the unforgivable sin? So what is it then to do this particular sin? What makes it so heinous in nature? Well, verse 30 actually helps us to frame and understand what Jesus is meaning here. How many of you understand that when you read your Bible and you land upon a verse that you don't understand, what's the first thing that you do? You read what came before it and you read what follows it. As they say in theological circles, context is king. Context is king. So Jesus says in verse 30, That he was saying it in response to scribes who were saying that he had an unclean spirit. Well, brothers and sisters, what spirit did Jesus have? 
He had the Holy Spirit, didn't he? The Spirit of God. The polar opposite of an unclean spirit. The pure spirit. The spotless spirit. The same spirit that lives within you and me. The Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus warning the scribes about here? He's warning them not to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. That's what he's saying. Never attribute or ascribe the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. This sin would be to say that Jesus himself, his work, his identity, his ministry, and his message is not of God, but is actually of the devil. That's what he means by this sin, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, it isn't a sin that you might commit accidentally. A slip of the tongue, maybe, or the like. Anyone worried that they might have potentially committed the sin has clearly not committed that sin. Why do we know that? Why do we know that that's true? That if you worry about particular sins that you may have committed that sin, how do we know then that it's, especially with this sin, how do we know that that makes it impossible that you have committed it? Well, Jesus says, doesn't he, there'll be no forgiveness for that sin. However, if you feel worried or you have a sense of guilt or anxiety that you may have committed this, what does that show us about your heart? Well, it shows us that you have a capacity for something called repentance. If you have worry or anxiety about this sin, it means there is a capacity in your heart to repent. Well, so what? Well, there is no record, brothers and sisters, not one record in all of Scripture that points to God ever turning away a penitent sinner. Never once in all of Scripture does somebody honestly ask God for forgiveness and He turns them away. Not once. So we can know we have not committed that particular sin, even if we worry or have anxiety around it. It's a settled belief and confession that the work of Jesus is in fact the work of Satan. I hope that has brought some encouragement to you today. I hope that that has cleared up some of that issue for you. So family. Let's talk about family this afternoon. I'm going to start with a quote actually. And uh, this is a first for me. I'm going to quote a pope. <laughs> I'm going to quote a pope. Now, the reason being is that um, this particular quote is actually true. It's possible um, for those who we disagree with profoundly to occasionally say true things. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. And this quote is from uh, Pope John the 23rd. And he said this, Family is the first essential cell of human society. Family is the first essential cell of human society. 
I think that's profound. I think that's absolutely true. The family is the original building block of all human civilization. Moreover, family isn't a man-made institution. It's not something that was thought up in a university somewhere by the brightest minds of academia as a means of furthering human flourishing. And neither is it something that's just merely incidental to our existence. For example, the fact that you right now are occupying a geographic space upon the planet Earth. That's just incidental to the fact of your material existence. But family is not like that. Family is actually God's idea. It's not man's idea. It's not merely incidental to our existence, but it is part of God's idea and plan for creation, that we should exist in family units. He chose family as the means by which we would come into the world and as the framework through which you would begin to know and experience the world around you. Family also, brothers and sisters, it's not just something that began in the Garden of Eden when mankind was created. And I want for you to see also that it won't cease when this world passes away. Family transcends the natural creation because family pre-exists it. The concept and function of family is rooted in the very Godhead, in the relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's eternal and it's familial. And there's something of God's image which is displayed and shown to the world through the workings of a healthy Christian family. There are others brighter than I who said that, who said that when the revival comes, when God, His kingdom is built on earth, it's going to look like family. It looks like family. And in a healthy family, we do see some of God's attributes on display, don't we? We see a mother and a father setting aside their own needs and putting their children first. They give of themselves sacrificially without the hope of receiving anything back in return. They, they give themselves to their young ones to benefit them. And it's in the cradle of family that children first begin to piece together who they are, their identity. Some of your most profound ideas about who you are as a person were actually formed in those early years, experiencing family. Important questions such as, who am I? What am I here for? And am I valuable? Those questions get answered profoundly, such a foundational way within a family unit. Those are some of the things that happen within family, very important to us. Because of the power and importance and transcendence and the, the nature of family, being from God, it should come as no surprise to us that family is one of the chief targets of the powers of darkness in this world. I want you to understand that the Bible talks clearly about 
spiritual forces and powers of darkness, evil forces which are at work in the world. They are invisible. We are not talking about a man in lycra with a red-hot poker. We are talking about supernatural powers in invisible places, influencing the minds of mankind. It's a scary thought, but it is certainly a true and biblical thought. For example, we know that the assault upon family comes to us from many angles. The enemy hates family. And he has targeted it both internally through culture, through, well, rather through thoughts, through appetites inside of us, our flesh, and also externally through things outside of us like culture, like government. The cultural attack upon the institution of marriage, which happened here in the West in the 20th century, has had an absolutely devastating effect upon family. It's led to the tragic breakdown of the nuclear family of mum, dad, children. And it's led to an epidemic, a tragic epidemic of fatherlessness in this nation. Having been a youth worker for many years, I've seen firsthand some of the, the effects and impact of that reality in our nation. The impact of it cannot be, brothers and sisters, cannot be overestimated. In totalitarian regimes, we see a different kind of attack on the family. It often comes from state government. In a totalitarian state, we'll see the government assuming the role of parent pushing the true mother and father out of the way and deciding for the child what is best for them. And scarily, we are seeing the creep of totalitarianism in the West. Already in places like Canada, a child can report their parents to the government for misgendering them. And the government may then intervene. Sometimes in a very draconian fashion. These are the days that we're living in. For most of us in this country, that hasn't been our experience of family. And many of you here have probably had very positive experiences of family, like me. However, all of you will also know that there's no such thing as a perfect family. <coughs> that every family has its dysfunction. <coughs> Excuse me. And Jesus' family, his blood relations, they were no different. They were no different. Jesus' family, his mom, his brothers, his sisters, they were dysfunctional. They were dysfunctional. Does that surprise you? It does me. But Jesus experienced dysfunctionality in his family. How do we know that? Well, in verse 21, if we skip back a little bit from these verses we're looking at today, we, we read this. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. That's not a passive action. They were going out to take control of Jesus. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. He's lost the plot. 
We've got to step in and do something before he ruins his life. Now, up until this point in Mark's gospel, we've not heard anything about Jesus' family. We haven't heard about Mary and Joseph, his brothers and sisters. From what we can tell in Scripture, Jesus did have sisters, um, certainly more than one. The first mention that we have of his family in this gospel is coming in a negative sense, where they come to seize him. In fact, that word zeteo or zetain in the Greek is used in Mark ten times. Every time it's used, it carries a negative connotation. It describes an attempt to determine Jesus and gain control over him. His family wants to assume its rights over him and make him honor their will over his own. Now, we read in verse 31, his family arrive, don't they? They arrive outside his house where he's teaching. They stand outside. They start to call to him, and they send in messengers. Come out. This is a strange contrast, isn't it? We've got Jesus' own family stood outside. His closest relations, those who should have known him best, are stood outside calling to him trying to take him away. They think he's lost it. think he's had a breakdown. And then we have a crowd of people, many of whom would have been strangers to Jesus, but they're sat with him, close to him, inside, and they're hanging on every word. It's a complete reversal of the norm, don't you think? Ordinarily, you would have you in your home, who would be around you? Your family. There'd be a sweetness of relationship there. There would be conversation. And outside you would expect to find the strangers, the crowd, being disconnected from what's going on inside. We've got a complete reversal of the norm here. What can we learn from this? What can we know from this passage? Well, I think what we can draw from it is this. For many who choose to follow Christ in this world, there is a similar experience to this. Many Christian converts will find that those who were once closest to them, sometimes even, even their own families, will now reject them, or at least treat them like they're out of their minds. And they'll find actually they have more in common with their spiritual brothers and sisters in the church. We know this is true, certainly, of Muslim converts. If you've ever read um, Nabil Qureshi's book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, this is exactly what happened to him. There was an awful price to pay for following Jesus. His own mother and father, his beloved mother and father, disowned him. Jesus said himself, didn't he? Do you think I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. We can see, even at this early stage of Jesus' ministry, his own family didn't believe him. We know from John's gospel also that his brothers certainly didn't believe that he was the Messiah. 
From here, we can tell that they had brought his mother along. Perhaps even Mary had her concerns and doubts at this stage about Jesus and his ministry. So they send word into the crowd. Tell him to come out. And at this point, many in that crowd, surely they would have been expecting for Jesus to get up, to excuse himself, and to go outside and to deal with his family. That would have been the proper thing to do, certainly at least by Jewish custom and tradition. But that is not what Jesus does. Instead, he turns to those sat with him and he says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. Now firstly, let's understand. Jesus isn't attacking Mary and his brothers and his sisters here. He's not slighting his natural family. He's not trying to go out of his way to be disrespectful. And he's certainly not trying to teach us as Christians that we ought to dishonor our own earthly families. But we do know from the rest of Scripture that whenever those nearest and dearest to him tried to get in the way of his mission, they got very short shrift. What Jesus is doing here in reality is that he is using this moment as a teachable moment. He's using this moment to tell his listeners, and also you here today, that there is an even greater revelation of family than even your own blood relations. He's also wanting to tell you that you here today in the 21st century have an opportunity to be part of Christ's family, to belong to him in a deeper and more profound way than even his natural relations did. I think that So two ways that we can understand the criteria for belonging to Jesus' family. Firstly, we have to start with the word whoever. Jesus looks around the room and he says, here are my brothers, sisters, mothers. He says, whoever. That's the word he begins with. For whoever. Who does Jesus say gets to be part of his family? Whoever. Whoever. It's inclusive. The invite is inclusive to all. It's unrestrictive in its scope, both rich and poor, black and white, male, female, Jew, Gentile, no matter your background, social status, intellectual aptitude, your reputation, whoever includes you, whoever includes all. The invitation to join Jesus' family, it's open to all. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget this. We know from the rest of Scripture that God's family ultimately is going to be made up from every tribe, tongue, and nation in this world. 
Isn't it cool to think that the average Christian living on earth today looks nothing like me? Looks nothing like you? They don't talk like us. They don't have the same type of life as us. The global Christian church is as culturally and racially diverse as you could possibly imagine. And brothers and sisters here in the UK, we are in the minority. We're in the minority. There are something like 160 million Christians in China alone, and that's a very conservative estimate. It's a very conservative estimate. The average Christian does not look white and middle class. We're part of something that is very, very unique in the earth and very, very diverse. Now, some theologians and teachers have gone wrong at this point. And it's important to state this too. There are some theologians, some teachers and preachers that want Jesus to finish the sentence at the word, whoever. They don't want him to carry on the sentence. They want him to stay at whoever. They want to pretend, these teachers, they want to pretend to be more merciful than God. And they want to make Jesus' family out to be totally inclusive of every single human who ever will live and whoever has lived. They don't want him to finish the sentence. They want to censor Jesus. And try and make him, I guess, more appealing to a world that loves its own sin and hates holiness. Brothers, I've got to say this. We have got to stop trying to be God's PR agent. Please, we must stop trying to baptize culture to make our God more appealing to a world that loves its sin. There is a movement in the Western church today that does want to baptize culture, that does want to just say, well, whoever, whoever is a member of God's family, every single person in the world is a child of God and is a brother or sister in God. This is simply not true. It's the heresy of universalism. It's the lie that everyone is just automatically in God's family. Nobody needs to repent. Nobody needs to believe. Everyone's just counted in. Everyone will be saved. Isn't it wonderful? Let's all sing Kumbaya. We know from what follows in Jesus' sentence here that that is not true. There is a qualification. There is a condition. He says, whoever do the will of God, whoever, inclusive, does the will of God, conditional. Jesus qualifies the whoever with this condition. Whoever does the will of God is in my family. It's interesting because the condition isn't genealogy. It's not 
blood relation. It's not wealth or education or any other condition other than this obedience to the will of God. Well, what did he mean by that? Is Jesus saying that we've all got to obey the law perfectly? Or is he saying it's a different kind of obedience to God's will? The kind of obedience whereby maybe we pray every morning and we wait on God's will and then we hear him speak and we do that. Well, I think Jesus explains this and what he really means by what follows and what precedes. When Jesus is saying, whoever does the will of God, who's he looking at? Who's he talking to? He's talking to those sat in a circle around him, listening to him. And he points to them and says, you are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. And what follows in chapter 4, the parable of the sower, You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Mark never wrote the big number four after saying this. Those chapter divides are not inspired. It's just an easy way of breaking down scripture. They're not in the originals. So this parable would have immediately followed what he's saying here. And what is the parable? Well, it's a parable about the gospel and about the soil being the condition of our hearts and how receptive we are to that gospel. So doing the will of God has to be understood in this context. What were these people doing to make them obedient to God's will? Well, they were listening to Jesus. They were letting his words take root in him. They were believing the gospel. So brothers and sisters, let's ask the question, who belongs to Jesus' family? Who does count in that number? It's those and those only who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe upon him through it. James Edwards, the the commentator, said this, Anyone can be an insider who sits at Jesus' feet and does the will of his Father. And no one can be an insider who does not. I love that. Nobody gets into Jesus' family on a technicality. Not even one, not even his own mother. She had to believe on him just the same that you have to believe on him. In fact, Augustine, the church father, said, Mary is more blessed in receiving the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. Isn't that incredible? There'll be no prawn sandwich brigade in heaven. If you're a football fan, you'll understand what that means. It was coined by Roy Keane in the 90s. When he was a Man United player, he would come out after halftime to start the second half, and he would always notice the executive box was always empty. What were they doing? They were busy munching their prawn sandwiches that had been paid for by the sponsors. There will be no people who get in on a technicality in heaven. Every single person enters by the same condition. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. 
what we read, isn't it, in John chapter 3. Who's Jesus talking to? Well, he's talking to a man named Nicodemus. Now, if ever there was a man who met the proper worldly conditions to be considered godly, it was this man. He's a Jewish teacher of the first rank. He's a Pharisee, a very influential, powerful man, knowledgeable of the Scriptures. And even Jesus says to him, you are the teacher of Israel. And yet even a man of this repute cannot enter the kingdom of God on his own standing. Jesus says to him, you must be born again. I want to say this, you today must be born again or you cannot enter the family of God. There's no other route. And brothers and sisters, I worry, I worry that many believe they're Christians on the basis of their upbringing because they've always been to church. I've always gone to Sunday school. You've got Christian parents. They believe they're Christians because they share Christian values or they know the Bible. The sad truth is, none of these things make you a Christian. None of them. Not even being a minister makes you a Christian. In fact, it is the sad truth that there are many ministers in this world today stood behind a pulpit who are not in fact saved. Because being a minister does not make one a Christian. You must be born again. You must receive the grace of Jesus Christ with the empty hand of faith. Not offering any of your own works. Oh, but listen Jesus, I'm a, I'm a good person. I've done all that you've said. I've been to church. I was trying to be a good boy or a good girl for the best part of my life. I've read the Bible. I've been to Soul Survivor. None of those things make you a Christian. You must receive the gospel. You must be born again. Are you born again? Have you believed on Christ? Do you believe on Him today? Do you feel that you need grace? That's a big question. Do you feel you need grace? I know I need grace more and more every day. You know, sometimes there's the, there's in equal parts, I have the joy, the joy of knowing God, the joy of receiving His grace, the joy of living in fellowship with Him. But as I grow as a Christian equally, I have the grief of living with myself every day. I hate sin. I hate my own sin. Do you hate your own sin? Does it grieve you? Do you want to be rid of it? That's the way a Christian thinks. A Christian doesn't try and prove to God that they're a good person. A Christian doesn't try and put God's arm up his back and say, you need to do X, Y, and Z because I've been a good person. That's what a pagan does. Secondly, I want to say this. There are some who make the opposite error. There are some 
that make the opposite error. They want to add conditions. They want to add conditions. They want to make it more than just doing the will of God. That's not enough for them. They want to add some extra in there in order for you and for me to be received into God's family. Brothers and sisters, we have to be as on guard against this error as the first error of universalism. This is called legalism. Legalism. How many of you have experienced legalism from Christians before? They want to add extra conditions. You might think it would be easy to spot legalism creeping into the church. But you know what? History tells us a different story. History tells us a completely different story. It tells us that whenever the church has become complacent and hasn't had persecution, it's then that the church becomes quickly corrupted by this legalism. I want to take you on a little journey through history just quickly before I finish. The nation of Germany... The nation of Germany has given us, undoubtedly, some of the greatest thinkers, the greatest theologians and preachers of all time. It's undisputed. This was also true in the early part of the 20th century. Yet what else happened in the first half of the 20th century in Germany? The rise of the Nazi party. And alongside the rise of Hitler's Nazi party, there was also a rise of a group called the Deutsche Christen, the German Christians. This is harrowing. This was a group of people made up of ministers, theologians, well-meaning lay people and Christians. And they wholeheartedly supported Hitler and aided his policies. In fact, the vast majority of Christian ministers in Germany under Nazi rule supported Hitler. And they went the extra mile to implement his policies. They actually went to the Nazi party and said, we know that you're actually not mandating this particular rule right now, but we're going to do it for you. They were one step ahead of Hitler in many ways. Isn't that a frightening thought? There's something called the Aryan Paragraph, which the German Christians voted to bring in in 1933. The Aryan Paragraph meant that you could only serve as a minister if you could prove that you were of pure Aryan descent four generations back. The Reich made every German carry with them a document, not a passport, or an ID card, but a record, a record of their racial heritage signed off by their pastor. Jews, or people of Jewish descent, often many generations previous, were not welcome at church any longer. The theologians taught that baptism could not even wash away one's Jewishness. So that meant that even if a Jew converted to Christianity, they could never be an equal member of Christ's family with an Aryan. Sadly, later, the German Christians hunted down, systematically hunted down any members of their congregation 
who had Jewish descent. They rifled through their baptismal records, they found out names, they checked out the names with the right department, and they worked alongside the, the Nazi secret police and hunted down every single Jewish person in their congregation. Thousands of them were sent to the death camps by their own churches. It's somber. It's a harsh truth to finish on, but I want for history to serve as a warning to us today to be on our guard against legalism, against sectarianism, against the invasion of political ideology into the church which changes our definition of what it means to be a member of Christ's family. You know what, brothers and sisters, Jesus said this. He said that we would be known by one thing, one thing in particular. Do you know what that was? We'll be known by what? By our love for one another, our love for one another. Not the way that you look, not the way that you vote, not your race, your social standing, your views on COVID or masks or your vaccination status, but by love. Don't ever forget that. Beloved, Jesus says in this chapter, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Remember that. That's every bit as true for the demonic powers as it is for Christ's church and this church. Let's not be divided by things that will not matter in eternity. But let's be united by our love of Christ and of his gospel today. Let's stand. I'm going to invite Mike up and the worship team. Oh God, how we long to be counted in your family today. And as we're praying at the end of today's message, I want for you to consider your eternal state. There's one thing that will matter in eternity about your identity. And it isn't anything to do with politics or any other human study. It's this. Did you know Jesus? And I want you to ask yourself that question today. Do I know him? Do I know him? It's possible to live with the trappings of Christian life all the way through your years and still not know Jesus. In Matthew 7, he turns to people and he said, they say, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? He says, away from me. I never knew you. Oh God, never let me hear those words from you. I want you to examine yourself. Do you know Jesus? Have you received the gospel? Do you believe on him today just as much as you did when you prayed the prayer? Whenever that was. And Lord, I pray that you would mark us with your love as a church. I pray that we would be known outside in this world as a church that loves one another. You know, there'll be people in this room that vote differently to you. And that's a good thing. There's people in this room that think differently from you about lots of issues. And that's a good thing. There's one thing that unites us, and that's Christ. And let us be known for that, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.